Good morning, everyone. Today's reading comes from Isaiah 40, verses 25 to 31. To whom will you compare me, or who is my equal, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? He who brings out the starry hosts one by one and calls forth each of them by name. Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. Why do you complain, Jacob? Why do you say, Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord? My cause is disregarded by my God. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, daughter. It's good to have obedient children, isn't it? uh... (laughs) Actually, today is one of the days when I don't get asked the question, um, why are you wearing that colour clerical shirt? Because normally the answer to that question is because this is the only one I've got that's been washed and ironed. Um, But today I've got a green clerical shirt because it is Creation Sunday. As we think of the amazing creation that we are part of and of our place in it. I became a Christian in my teens. I was about 16. um, Through the work of what used to be called Crusaders and now called Urban Saints. And uh, my chemistry teacher was one of the leaders. Um, He sometimes wished, um, wished that he wasn't because... I used to buy my own chemistry textbooks and read them up in advance of, the, um, uh, of him teaching us about it. And every now and then he would look over to me just to check he got it right. Um, but <laughs> there we are. Um, I've never had much problem of, about being both a Christian and having a passion for science. I still don't, uh, hence my Grove booklet, um, which I bought one or two copies with. A key point in that is that there have been and still are many scientists who are Christians. One of my heroes is Michael Faraday, who discovered how to generate electricity, but was well known um, and respected as a Christian. And the people he worked with found him... um, 
someone who didn't just talk about it, but just lived it out in the way that he was kind and forgiving and all those things. He started the wonder... So how many people watch the Royal Institution Christmas lectures? Oh, more of you need to do that. Okay, between Christmas and New Year, there are these lectures which um, are for children at the Royal Institution. They're televised, and Michael Faraday founded those over, you know, nearly 200 years, well, about 200 years ago, actually. So do, do note that down. Royal Institution Christmas Lectures. Brilliant. Most the, people seem to think that science and faith are in conflict. Um, in the early 20th century, a survey was done of professional scientists in the States trying to find out if they believed in a God who answered prayer. I wonder how many you think might have responded like that. Well, the answer was 40%. 40% of professional academic scientists in the States uh, in the early 20th century believed in a God who answered prayer. And somebody did the survey again at the end of the 20th century, and the figure was still about the same. The myth of science and faith being opposed to each other is a myth. Totally a myth. I mean, our church, I mean, you can be a Christian and a scientist. In our church in Sheffield, we have a, a, a physics professor who leads a team that was part of the discovery of gravitational waves, if that means, or at least the observation of gravitational waves, if that means anything to anybody. And we also have an engineering professor in, in our church in Sheffield. Um, she's amazing. She, she does something called impact engineering, which basically is about how explosions and forceful things can damage buildings, and her task is to, is to build ones that they don't damage. Um, she's a Liverpudlian with a broad Liverpudlian accent, and it's, it, she's great. She's just, uh, prepared, just started training for ordination as well. She won't stop being a physics prof an engineering professor, but she is getting ordained. And just that thing about, about the myth of conflict. About 10 years ago, I had the privilege of attending a conference hosted and funded by CERN in Geneva to think about the scientific, philosophical, and theological implications of the Big Bang. Wow, those conversations, 50 of us in a room, and those conversations, I got blagged onto it by a friend of mine, but it was, it was, um, it was great. Those conversations were great. The discussions that upset me most are when anti-Christian scientists insist that you can't be a Christian and a scientist, and anti-science Christians who say the same thing. Science and faith mesh. They're not opposites to each other. And the result of when people make it opposite is that it can put off seeking young people for finding out more about Jesus. Whether you believe in evolution or instant creation or whatever it is, is secondary to following Jesus. Don't let that get in the way of people following Jesus. Okay, um, let's move on a bit. That passage from Isaiah 40 is one that in my early days as a Christian, I stumbled across and thought, wow. These people understood the greatness of the universe. 
and the greatness of the God who created it all. We so easily think that people in big biblical times didn't know about the immensity and beauty of the universe, but of course they did. They didn't have light pollution. They didn't have air pollution. They permanently lived in dark sky areas. Wow. Michael Faraday is a hero of mine, but the garden at the bottom of our garden has a, a really powerful floodlight that's on all the evening. And I have two telescopes. And, you know, that light just floods out the what I'm seeing through the telescopes. One of these days, I'll walk around and say something to them. <laughs> the psalmist knew the glory of the night sky. The heavens declare the glory of God. Now, in our days, we get, we've got these telescopes. So if we can put up the next slide. Um, the Hubble Space Telescope first, and then the James Webb Telescope. And these are telescopes through which we can look at the universe from beyond our atmosphere, and we see how immense and majestic it is. Um, this is a picture of a small part of the night sky. It's about the size of the full moon. It's called the Hubble Deep Space Field, This, if anybody knows that. Um, it's a part of the sky where, where, to the naked eye, there don't appear to be any stars. And there aren't any individual stars in that picture. Each smudge of light in that picture is a galaxy like our Milky Way, with uh, thousands and millions of stars. There are 10,000 fuzzy shapes that are galaxies in that picture. The nearest and brightest are a billion light years away, and the faintest are 13 billion light years away. So we're seeing them as they were less than a billion years after the Big Bang. The scale of the universe is mind-blowing. We are on a planet that goes around our star, the Sun. All the individual stars we see with the naked eye are part of our galaxy, which contains about 100,000 yeah, 100, million stars, give or take a few. The Hubble picture contains 10,000 galaxies, and if that's the pattern that there is all over the sky, that means there's something like 50,000 million galaxies out there, each with millions of stars. You can understand why the psalmist, looking at the heavens, the work of God's hand, says, what is man that you are mindful of him? It's from Psalm 8. So you can look at that and think, do we have any significance? Sometimes people stress our insignificance, and sometimes we feel that. But actually, there are some good scientific reasons for saying that we are significant. The first of those reasons is the size of the universe. In my teenage years, I used to ask awkward questions. Um, I still do. I asked awkward questions about the size and age of the universe. Why are there so many stars? Why is the universe so big? And why has it been around for so long? Well, actually, we are connected to the answers to those questions. Why are there so many stars? Well, as a chemist, I love the periodic table, all 90-odd elements. The elements needed to make humans, carbon, oxygen, nitrogen, sulfur, phosphorus, all the rest, 
they're made inside stars. The Big Bang only produced hydrogen and helium. All the rest of the elements have been produced by stars and nuclear fusion of them coming together to form bigger elements. That's why there need to be so many stars out there, so we can be created. Why so long? Because it's only in the second generation of stars. See, the first generation of stars is only hydrogen and helium, and then, then when they blow up, they, they, they uh, send other elements out, all the heavier elements out. And then in the second generation of stars, all those heavier elements that we're made of can be collected together in planets and new stars. And why is there such big distances? Because life would not survive being too, linked, too near a supernova. So here's a thought for you. We're all made of the ashes of dead stars. You're all stardust. Whoa. Whoa. And that gives a surprising twist to our contemplation of the immensity of the universe. Without all those trillions and trillions of stars, we should not be here to be dismayed by them. Stars and space are necessary to make us. But in us, and in other intelligent life, if there is intelligent life elsewhere in the universe, the universe has become aware of itself and aware of its creator. You are significant, you are special. And the human brain is the most complex thing that's around, really, in creation. We are far more complex and wonderful than any star. So, going back to... Sorry, if you're boggling, don't worry, we all boggle with all this stuff. In the second part of that Isaiah reading, we're told that the God of the universe cares for it. He knows all the stars by name. And I guess he knows all the galaxies by name as well. But he also knows each one of us by name. Our God is great enough and compassionate enough to care for us, as well as being the awesome creator of, a, of an awesome universe. Those who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall rise up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. The God who cares for creation also cares for you and me. He is great enough and compassionate enough to do both. But more than that, God has given us humans a place in his creation, and I want to throw in there just, just for fun, and any other intelligent life that's around the universe. He's given us a place in his creation. In Genesis 1, we see that humans are made in God's image. And this is about our God being a relational God. I love the fact you've got the Rublev icon in there, in the prayer room, which is a, an icon of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit looking at each other around a table. And there's a gap at the front of the table which is inviting you to join them. At the heart of reality is a God of relationships. 
Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we are relational beings made in the image of God, created to be in relationship with God, in relationship with each other, and in relationship with creation. Genesis 1 describes this relationship with creation in terms of the image of God and talks about exercising dominion over creation. If you're worried about that word, dominion, uh, don't switch off yet. In the ancient Near East, um, rulers would often have statues made of themselves on the outskirts of cities. I'm not exactly sure where this one is, but it's somewhere in the, ancient, in, in the Near East. And basically, the ruler was saying from that, this is my territory. This city is my territory. Um, and we're to exercise dominion over God's creation. But unfortunately, so we're, we are supposed to represent God to creation. Unfortunately, the idea of dominion has been totally misunderstood because all our relationships, those three relationships with God, with each other, and with creation, all of those have been damaged by our sin. And we have interpreted dominion as domination. We think we can do what we like with the rest of creation. And we see the results in pollution, in loss of biodiversity, and in climate change. But God, who calls the stars by name, delights in creation. If you get a chance, read Job 38 to 41, which shows how much God delights in creation. Creation matters to God, and it should matter to us. And we're commanded to look after creation, not to exploit it. Here's the real issue of climate change. One or two of you may remember an American president called Jimmy Carter. Uh, one or two will confess to being that old. Okay. His climate advisor said this a few years ago, probably more than a few years ago now. He said, I used to think that the top environmental problems were biodiversity loss, ecosystem collapse, and climate change. I thought that 30 years of good science could address these problems. I was wrong. The top environmental problems are selfishness, greed, and apathy. And to deal with these, we need a cultural and spiritual transformation. And we scientists, he said, don't know how to do that. How to change people's attitudes. You see, the problem with all of this is that we bring to it human understandings of what ruling and dominion are about, rather than ideas of ruling and dominion shown to us by Jesus. For Because Jesus is the very exact image of God and who shows us a very different way of ex exercising dominion, a servant model. He is a servant king. I mentioned that last Sunday to our church because Dan, our, 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 our priest in charge, is great. He just doesn't seem to connect with, with songs more than 25 years old. And The Servant King is a wonderful song. Put my plug in. Jesus doesn't only show us what God is like. 
In John 1, no one has ever seen God, but God makes him known. He is also the exact image of God, so he can show us what we should be like as those made in the image of God. I often think our view of God needs to be Jesus-shaped rather than trying to fit Jesus into our view of God. We must also allow our way of exercising dominion to be Jesus-shaped. Paul writes in Philippians 2 that we are to share the mind of Jesus who, though being in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be taken advantage of, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. Jesus exercised dominion for the sake of those he'd come to serve. In the same way, we should not count being made in the image of God as something to be taken advantage of, something to be exploited, but we should serve the creation. It's about responsibilities, not privileges and rights. An entitlement. The dominion entrusted to humanity, like God's own exercise of dominion, involves respect, protection, and care for others, rather than mastery and manipulation. We actually see something of this, uh, the importance of caring for the creation, in the Old Testament. We've actually got some pictures coming up now, that's good. Um, Exodus 23, verses 10 to 12. For six years you shall sow your land and gather in its yield, but the seventh year you shall let it rest and fallow. The fallow system was discovered 3,000 years ago. You shall let it rest and fallow that the poor of your people may eat and what they leave the beasts of the field may eat. I just got, thought a rabbit would you know, be quite a good beast of the field. For six days you shall do your work, but on the seventh day you shall rest, that your ox and donkey may have rest. That, and the son of your servant woman and the stranger may be refreshed. God insists that those made in his image should care for animals, both wild and domesticated. And really the final thing I want to talk about is that being, being made in the image of God is a gift of God in creation, but it's also a calling. Being made in the image of God is about calling, not status. As individual Christians, we're called to grow into the likeness of Christ. As redeemed humanity, we are called to grow into the image of God in how we look after creation. It's only then that instead of being part of the problem, we can become part of the solution. Romans 8 says this, The creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the children of God. The creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in the hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the glory our hope as Christians includes hope for God's amazing creation. A renewed heaven and a renewed earth, a new creation. For God has a covenant with creation. 
as well as with humanity. If we can see that covenant, please. There it is. The rainbow. The rainbow is a bow without aloes. Have you ever thought about that? The rainbow is a bow without aloes, without weapons. God's promise to creation is that he will not destroy it. He will renew it. He will not destroy it. Therefore, it matters how we look after it. So what is our place in creation? Serving it and looking after it. And through that, enabling creation itself to praise its creator God. Let's just be quiet for a moment. Lord, we thank you for the wonderful creation that you have made. We thank you for its majesty, its beauty. And Lord, we thank you that you have given us a part to play in it. And we confess that we've often not done that. Lord, show us practical ways of how we may fully uh, conduct that uh, calling to be in your image, that we may look after your creation, respect your creation, and see it flourish. In Jesus' name, amen.